Welcome, everyone, to Behind the Data, the podcast that takes you inside the world of market research and breaks down the topics that we live and breathe. I'm your host, Peter Cosmel, and today I'm joined by Alan Ronan, Euromonitor International's Industry Manager for Sports and Entertainment. Alan, how's it going? Hey, Pete. Uh, all good, all good. Looking forward to uh, chatting with you about all things sports. Yes, me too, me too. I mean, I feel like you kind of have one of the dream jobs here at Euromonitor. Uh, as a sports fan myself, I feel like research on that topic would probably be high on my list if I were near field. Can you tell us a little bit what it's like to research sports and entertainment? Like what goes into the whole process? Yeah, for sure. Um, and off the bat, like firstly, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan like you. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my first ever paid job was carrying a scoreboard around the golf course at a European tour event back in, uh, in Ireland in 2003. So, um, you know, I've always, I've always looked at sports as like, you know, Okay, I see it as a business, even if that was just maybe, I don't know, 50 euro in the hand back then. But uh, right. yeah, yeah. Even during my different times at Euromonitor, I was always you know, writing for different newspapers about mixed martial arts and golf and stuff like that. So uh, now that we get to work with different sports teams and leagues and, and all of that, it's, uh, it's pretty strange. It's, uh, I guess it's strange in the sense that we're traveling to these clubs that we'd all know and recognize and seeing club crests and logos that we've been able to identify since we were kids. But yeah, it's also strange that that's like normal now, you know, walking into these offices and talking with these executives and so on. And also just understanding what their needs are when it comes to data. So on the data side, we have a, a really great research team that, that we have working on sports. Uh, I'd have to give uh, one of them in particular a shout out. That's uh, our research manager, Eustace, who actually kicked off our sports project uh, focusing just on Western European football a couple of years back. And that's since been expanded to cover all major pro sports leagues and competitions and so on. In terms of uh, in terms of how we do it, it's pretty unique. It's a mixed met methodology. So what we realized was that a lot of this work could be automated. So things like um, social media tracking, things like ticket right. spend and, and uh, how many people are going to games, what's the capacity of venues, all of that. And some of it's manual work. So if we think of sponsorship, that requires quite a bit of manual input to track all of the different commercial partnerships and sponsorships that happen in pro sports. Uh, and then ultimately when we compile all this match day and social media data and sponsorship data, we tie it back to uh, brand and company data that we collect in different parts of our uh, Euromonitor databases. Um, let's say, for example, there's a team in the US that partnered with an alcoholic drinks company. We'll draw in data on that company performance, where they're where they're strong, what categories they're active in, and then what are their key brands. And uh, this is this is useful for two reasons. Other sports properties, like other teams, other leagues, uh, can look at that company and assess brand or company fit and know who to go for, who to pitch to, as in where this team you should be sponsoring us because we make a good partner. We'll get, give you the exposure you want. And then for alcoholic drinks companies, they need to know what their competitors are doing within the, the alcoholic drinks industry as well. So, you know, that's just one example, but you expanded out to all the different 
data sets that we we have at Euromonitor across different industries and categories, and it makes for a, a pretty pretty compelling sports database. And then my job is is pretty easy. It's to make sure that the insights we draw after we compile all this data is is useful for rights holders and brands, and um, it provides solutions for them essentially. Well, definitely don't sell yourself short. I'm sure it's not easy, but it's sports though. We love it, right? That's true. Yeah. Bringing up that point about sports, it seems like both sports and and you kind of touched on entertainment as well and sponsorship. Uh, everything is kind of more linked now. I feel like it was in the past. Like if I go to a hockey game or a baseball game here uh, in Chicago, it seems like everyone has their phone out. Uh, they're taking selfies. They're tweeting for prizes mid games. I feel like the last time I was at a, a Blackhawks game in Chicago, there was an app you can download that has like a game built into it during stoppages in play or TV timeouts. You played the game and whoever wins the game has some prize. So it's like it's this constant bombardment of of entertainment, even when the, the game itself isn't going on. So what do you think about that? Is like is the on field or on ice product not enough for consumers these days? Um, the short answer would be no. I, I don't think it's enough these days. Uh, it, but it's like the world we live in. So there's a bunch of different different reasons why digital is so important. So did you ever hear that? You you might have seen it as a meme about going to the gym. If you go to the gym and didn't Instagram it, did you even work out? <laughs> yes, I have seen that. Yeah, exactly. It's a, the same for sports events. Like uh, I've heard it being described as like, collecting memories before, but. That might have been true in the past, but it's about sharing in, in real time as well. So one example of the need for connectivity, there was a Six Nations rugby match recently. So England versus Ireland. In terms of global exposure, it's it's no Super Bowl, but in England and Ireland, it's like massive game. Twickenham Stadium, 82,000 capacity, sell out all the time. And those tickets were like gold dust. And uh, you get a lot of friends that go and share stories during the game oh we're here we're doing this and after the game it turned out ireland were thumped 24 12. <laughs> but if those friends shared those same stories after the match and talked about how exciting it was my reaction wouldn't be oh that's amazing how did you get tickets it would be right. we lost the game you know it's only it's only live once so people are going to be on their phones sharing but i i think there was this one point a couple of years back where i realized the the, the dystopian future ahead of us. Now, I, I say this way because I'm a little bit of a, at least I was a little bit of a Luddite when I saw this happen, right? So back in 2016, I was at a, a Bellator mixed martial arts event. So I'm not sure, you, you know Bellator. Sure. And uh, at the O2 in London, so big arena. And I was with a, a fellow uh, colleague and MMA fan. Uh, so it was a fairly typical event. Uh, those that aren't really familiar with the sport of mixed martial arts, there's a distinction between this and boxing is that fans usually care more about undercard fights than they do in boxing. Uh, they care more in MMA, that is. But what we noticed during those initial fights was something of a, like a, a sign of the, the things to come. Around us, everyone was on their phones, even while there's fights in the cage. And they're all doing the same thing. So just a couple of weeks earlier, uh, Pokemon Go was released. Uh, yep. You know, augmented oh, yeah. reality where players collect Pokemon from real world mm -hmm. locations. And so I guess it wasn't every day that these fans got to be in this massive venue. And so while some of us were watching, you know, two people slog it out in the cage, yeah. uh, most people were like moving around the stadium or on their phone trying to collect these I don't know if they're a rare Pokemon I'm not but it, it was it was one of those strange moments where we're like okay 
regardless of what happens, we could see the greatest fight in that cage right now. Yeah. Well, people are still going to be walking around. Oh, I saw a Pokemon over here. So, you know, it's not enough to try and keep people from their phones because that's just not going to happen no matter right, how exciting sure. the game is. Uh, so I'd say fans and attendees are still going to be on their phones no matter what, and that's that's okay. But when you mention things like prizes and games i'd say teams and leagues are, are trying to own that attention too and what we see here is we're like better apps from teams that can cater to fans at the game and fans online um and one thing we always hear in sports is that it's not about trying to dictate where the fans should be but meeting them where they already are and and so th- i think that's where where we're at right now like fans are on twitter they're on Twitch, they're watching uh, Instagram stories of their favorite athletes, they're watching YouTube, they're sharing everything. And to do that, you need good Wi-Fi uh, that can handle this high usage for a large number of people. But also, you know, not just the games, not just the outliers like Pokemon Go that time it was just released, but also (laughs) convenient services like like mobile ticketing, mobile payments also uh, enabled by Wi-Fi. So... I think the case for a connected arena or stadium, like it's it's unavoidable these days. It's just yeah, yeah. It's it, it's kind of crazy how you know over the past I don't know ten to fifteen years that you've seen that kind of a thing. Even even the printing of your ticket is something now that's archaic. When I when I get a ticket from uh, a third party seller and it says you know you have to print this, I'm like oh come on really? Like I can't just show on my phone? Absolutely, absolutely. I I went to a a football match not so long ago. I won't I won't name the team, but a mm-hmm. high profile team. You know, it was a it was an A4 a full A4 sheet ticket uh, with a map of the stadium and everything on it, and I just <laughs> thought this is it feels. Uh, slightly anachronistic right now, you know. Uh, surely this should be on my phone, but um, yeah, it was just it, it was slightly strange and definitely not going to be around for too much longer. I, I assume. Yeah, so it seems like a lot of these endorsements and apps and marketing, it, it's kind of I guess you wouldn't really call it out of the box anymore because it's kind of commonplace now. Um, what other non-traditional methods of marketing have you seen, if any? I have to admit, I spend a lot of time down the rabbit hole of understanding how teams and leagues are engaging uh, new fans and new markets because any team or league we speak to it's always the the first priority um it's a common goal among all of them and it's almost like what is our current audience and what is the totality of the audience that we could potentially address um and then the quickest route to those fans is, is often through social media. But uh, social media is almost like a, a means to an end. And in order to, to attract the new fans, new leagues, to develop support and loyalty, uh, they, there has to be more than just social media. So it means teams and leagues are, are traveling to new markets. They're playing games, uh, re- whether that's regular season games or exhibitions uh, in, in different countries. We mm-hmm. see the NFL now hosts regular season games in London. You know, and yeah. they're always they're always incredibly popular and also a great opportunity for the league to actually promote what they're doing so maybe it's their streaming services and uh, subscriptions to nfl game pass the nba i've done done the same few games in 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 london i think this year was uh paris um yeah yeah i remember that yep yeah yeah and barcelona madrid playing uh the el clasico in miami a few years ago there's that, there's global games, there's your social media strategy, but also then there's how do we how do we make people care? What are their cultural touch points really? So 
more and more we see uh, things like the, the the Premier League in the UK uh, launching localized content, and we we see the same with NFL, NBA, especially with the with uh, markets like India and China. That if you just push out the same content that you would to your uh, US or Western European uh, fan base, um, you're not going to get the type of traction that you could if you have local local fan stories, content yeah. from local influencers. Yeah. Um, a lot of times in, in recent years, Bollywood stars have been used to sort of advocate on behalf of different leagues or teams. And, you know, if I'm not familiar with a team and then somebody I actually know and relate to and care about from my where I'm from says, oh, I should I should support the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, that's a reason for me to support them, you know, and right, I didn't yeah. have a reason to support anyone else. So it's all about the content that puts out and how how much traction it can gain. And more and more, I think that the top leagues and teams are realizing that it has to be really localized. And it's true, like recruiting these allies and uh, getting a good understanding of the local landscape. And I, I think to effectively put out a global strategy, it means thinking locally as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. Kind of an... A- offshoot example of that uh i know here in the states uh football or soccer it's just you know it's just not as popular and there is a major league soccer uh league here and chicago has a team um and for when they first started they played in soldier field which is our nfl stadium here in chicago and a while ago i want to say it was probably more than 15 years ago they moved built another stadium um out kind of outside of the city which you know, you can get to, but it was annoying. You know, you, like, you mm-hmm. had to take a train as far as it went and then a bus. And now they've just announced this year that they've moved back and they're starting pl- to play games at this NFL stadium again. And I guess their first game, you know, they sold way more tickets just by moving back into the city proper than they would have, you know, in the, in the outlying part of the city. And I think that's just huge is like bringing your team to where your fans are, you know, accessibility has a lot to do with that. And maybe it's, you know, they've marketed their new look, their new crest, this whole kind of rebranding of the team and bringing it back to the city. I think there's proven results. So absolutely. And I think taking an, an an MLS team uh, is one thing, but it's not just, let's say teams that are looking to grow like that, even well-established leagues. Like we've spoken with Italian and Spanish football teams that they struggle to get fans in to those awkward uh, timed games. Like Sunday nights at 8.30 PM kickoff. If you're talking about an hour and 30 train to get to the stadium and back, it's it's very difficult to sell unless it's a massive game. And I mean, there aren't that many massive games, even in top leagues. I guess I'd, I would have grown up knowing that Manchester United and Liverpool is a massive game. And we have North London derbies and Barcelona and Real Madrid. And I guess the like Red Sox and Yankees coming to London, like that was mm-hmm. the, the similar type of derby. But there's a lot of games that aren't as high profile. And if, they're, if they don't actually just align with the fan schedules, fans, they might not decide to go and they might try and just follow it through whether it's online or watching it on tv but you have to make it easy for fans right yeah don't make them don't make them work for it essentially but it has to be that overall strategy and you mentioned branding there as well all of it comes into it i think it's about building that overall brand putting a lot of marketing dollars in making people care and it's not just about having 
millions of people on Instagram or Facebook either. It, it, we've seen we've seen leagues look at new markets and build up fan bases online in those markets, and then six months or a year later, nothing's happening. The fan base dissipates. It has to be almost on the ground in some in some manner. There has to be local content. It has to be constantly engaging. It, it really has to be like all things all of the time to succeed, I think, for you. Right. It's like you can't expect fans to just come to the games or watch them on TV anymore. I mean, you have to connect via social, like you said. Uh, we're seeing teams not only live stream, but also use social media to create kind of a second screen experience. Yeah. So second screen is an interesting one because we know a lot of leagues have been been aware for a long time that fans, they're not just watching the game. They want to see in, in real time the reactions um, and they want to follow the conversations online. And increasingly, it's not just second screen, but it's trying to understand where the totality of the conversation is happening. Uh, so mm-hmm. in some cases, what might have been deemed a second screen is now the first screen where people are watching on their <laughs> phones more so than uh, on their TV. Fans are watching highlights as well the following day. I, I know being a, an avid MMA fan, one of my favorite articles every Sunday morning is go online and look at fighters react. And it's just their Twitter reactions to the, the event the night before. And obviously it, it's late over here. So usually that's my first port of call the, the, the next morning when I wake up, you know, the, the fights finish at 6 a.m. And I immediately want to see what the fighters reacted to uh, and watch the fights as, alongside those as well. So um, I think a lot of different um, sports properties, broadcasters, they're adjusting to this. And they have to think about how all of this content is being consumed, whether it's uh, what we put out on Twitter isn't going to be the same as what we put out on Instagram. I'm probably uh, a pretty good example of this. Uh, last night, uh, I got home, turned on the Blackhawks game. I'm a huge hockey fan, love the Blackhawks, so watch the whole thing. And at the same time, I'm like on my phone, and I'm on Twitter, and you know, people are talking about each goal or each bad penalty or whatever. And like, I'm typing on Twitter, like my reaction to stuff as it's happening in real time. So it's like I have that phone in front of me while the game's going on. It's possible I missed a goal or two, but it's hearing fans' reactions or seeing the reactions, even of the team, like, you know, when they post a gift that somebody scored, it's like everyone's always on it right away. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I have one, one example that sticks out of my head from, uh, from this. Probably five, six years ago, it was the, the Open Championships. So the British Open golf event was happening. And uh, I was actually traveling at the time. And I, I said to my friends, come on, we'll go in. We'll watch the last six holes of this. And I would never miss this event. And so we're in, we're in watching this in a, in a bar. The commentary is off because nobody, nobody was watching. Nobody really <laughs> cared. There was no, no local guys were, were up at the top of the leaderboard. For me, this is still the biggest event in, in golf there is, really. Well, maybe that and the Masters. Um, and I'm watching this, and all my friends around me, they're chatting. They're not paying attention. They're looking at their phones. They're you know, just doing what you would do if there was nothing on the, the TV. I felt like I would have been better watching it by myself because it took away from the experience. So yeah, yeah. what I realized then was, you know, just scrolling and refreshing on on Twitter and and seeing other people have the same reaction to that same shot as me, it almost uh, validated my emotional reaction to the event itself. Uh, because I'm around people that don't care, but I need to speak and I need to be around people that do care. And um, that's that's what I think the second screen does. It's uh, it allows you to justify how 
into a sports event you actually are. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yes. And I feel that same way if I'm traveling, you know, overseas or wherever, and there's still, you know, sports going on in the states that I care about. I remember I was, yeah, I was in London for uh, one of the Blackhawk Stanley Cup runs, and like I couldn't watch it on TV, but, you know, just being on Twitter like in the morning when I woke up to see what happened, to see everyone else's reaction. It does validate things in a way, like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for, for years, I would have been the the guy that's up at 5.30 a.m. watching MMA fights. Uh, right. it's, it's not like the, it's a huge social occasion. So uh, I rely on North American sports fans to, uh, for that sort of uh, discussion around the event itself. So um, fans are engaging in a wide range of different ways, different whether it's video content, reactions, uh, whether it's watching athlete IG stories, commenting on different picks, like it's trying to understand where all these fans are, how they're engaging, and then you get to, I, I think, the crux of it, which is what's our what's our audience, what's our total audience, and right. who's actually engaging with this? Because watching the live event isn't the be all and end all uh, as a, as it once was. I think you have to account for those others that. I'm just going to swipe a few times and check what people are saying online about this. Uh, and especially for different sports. So I, I mentioned golf uh, mm-hmm. a little while ago. There's probably not going to be as many people tuning in on a Thursday as there are on a Sunday. Um, but if you want to get in touch with fellow golf fans, you go onto Twitter and you can check the scores immediately. Just type in your hashtag, type in mm-hmm. follow the PGA Tour and see what's happening. Um, so, yeah, I think getting to that answer of what's our audience uh, involves looking not just at TV, but looking at things like second screen, third screen. And uh, I think that's only just going to get bigger. If I'm, if I'm a casual fan of something and and a a team or a club wants to turn me into a hardcore fan, is social media the way to do it? Or are there other things out there that they can do to kind of bring those fans in who might not know enough about the sport or enough about the club? Um, Like what are they doing to, to bring those fans in even closer? Arguably, the infrastructure exists now to convert casuals into hardcore fans, but I'd say more to just simply engage with those that might have never cared before. It, I think it's a battle against uh, indifference. So I never really understood or cared that much about American football until I watched a game in a packed bar in Boston about 15 years ago. And that was the eureka moment for me when it came to that sport. And, you know, people never cared about golf so much until Tiger Woods came along and redefined Mm -hmm. the sport back in 96, 97 on the PGA Tour. Actually, around that time, the PGA Tour and the European Tour were were neck and neck um, commercially. So... It was until Tiger came along, um, when he when that happened, all the focus went to the US. And probably the most prevalent example, I think, was uh, like the story of the hero and the villain in combat sports. So uh, Floyd Mayweather, um, he adopted the persona of the villain, uh, Floyd Money Mayweather, led to millions of pay-per-views. Uh, even though he had a fighting style that wasn't really... It, it didn't really cater to the casual fan as such. He sold more pay-per-views than than anybody really so um i think alongside growing exposure to new audiences um sports properties have these pitch moments to make people care essentially and that could yeah. be like these uh uh local this localized content on social media maybe it's 
new games and new markets, uh, NBA going to, to Paris or uh, NHL going to China, or maybe it's documentaries on any of the streaming giants that tell the stories of the athletes that fans might not otherwise know. So, um, yeah, I think it will be this battle against indifference and trying to win new fans where they can in new markets. Yeah, I feel that kind of ties into uh, to women's sports exposure as well. I mean, I know uh, in the past maybe two or three years, um, women's hockey, women's soccer here in the States has been particularly uh, picking up. I, the women's uh, hockey team won the gold medal here in the in the United States uh, in the last Winter Olympics. So I know that's been a thing. The NHL is trying to get more exposure to these women athletes. And I think that's another thing that companies, brands have to look out for is, is kind of the rise in, in women's sports, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's all about accessibility and exposure, I think. And, uh, and yeah, we're finally seeing that being addressed in, in, in women's sports, you know, at the World Cup last year and uh, hugely successful and then in other sports as well. Uh, so, yeah, we, 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 we care about what we see. And if we don't see it, we don't tend to know that we should care about it. So mm-hmm. I, think, I, think you're, I think you're spot on there, Pete. Well, Alan, thanks a lot for being on the show. Uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you, Pete. Uh, and happy to do it again. You know, if we want to talk about streaming, social media, sponsorship strategies, um, I'm happy to talk about what the, the top leagues and teams are doing in the world of sports. For sure. For sure. We'll do it again. And thank you all for tuning into this episode of Behind the Data. We'll hope you continue to listen as we dive into research data and everything in between. 